Welcome to CounterPoint, the Counter Narrative Projects podcast. This show amplifies the voices of Black gay men through conversations with thought leaders, creatives, and activists. I am your host, Johnny Ray Cornegay III. You can follow us online on our website at thecounternarrative.org, or you can follow us on Twitter at Building Desire. Today's show is a conversation between Charles Stevens and journalist Linda Villarosa. Linda wrote a piece for the New York Times entitled America's Hidden HIV Epidemic. Enjoy the show. Hey, y'all. I'm Charles Stevens, the founder and executive director of the Counter Narrative Project. I have the pleasure of being joined with Linda Virosa. Linda runs the journalism program at City College of New York, a former editor and contributing writer for the New York Times. She also served as the executive director of executive editor, I'm sorry, of Essence Magazine. Professor Virosa has also written or co-written a number of books as well as a novel. She contributes to several national publications in print and online. We invited Linda on Counterpoint to discuss her essay, America's Hidden HIV Epidemic, Why Do Black and Bisexual Men Have a Higher HIV Rate Than Any Country in the World? The piece, published in the New York Times, has been a major topic of discussion in a number of HIV advocacy spaces. Linda, welcome to Counterpoint. How are you today? Thank you. I'm really good. I'm so happy to be here. And I just wanted to say I really, really respect your work. Um, every time I go, which I, I mean, I already knew about the Counter Narrative Project before now, but um, every time I go to that homepage and I see Craig Washington and David Malbranch, <laughs> I get teary um, because I just love them so much and really, really respect the work that they do as well. So thank you for having me here this morning. Thank you. So why don't we just jump right into things. I know um, I'm super excited to just kind of get into the piece and like how I think it's had a completely transformative effect already on the HIV advocacy landscape. But could you talk a bit about what inspired you to write this piece and what inspired you to like to work on it? Um, Well, I've been covering HIV AIDS, I mean, when it was still called GRID. Mm -hmm. And so I, in, I guess, I can't remember if it was 1985 or 86, um, I wrote a piece for Essence. And I didn't even know what, you know, I didn't know what the, what the disease was. And Susan Taylor came to me and she said, would you do this piece on this thing called grid? And I was like, gay related. What is that doing in essence? Is it for lesbians? I mean, no one knew anything. So I ended up doing this early piece and it was about a woman in the Bronx and um, her baby. And by the time the piece ran, um, the mother and the baby had died. And um, so I was like, what is this terrible thing? I don't, you know, it it was so confusing. And then, you know, I covered it off and on for Essence here and there, mostly as an editor. And then um, in, I guess, 2003 or four, I think 2004, I was at the New York Times and I wrote, and I'd written a few stories on HIV. And then, you know, I wrote two cover stories. And at that point, I thought this thing is over. You know, this is this is ended. We have medication. You know, and the media was saying, you know, the larger media was kind of saying, oh, the end of AIDS. So I was like, okay, I'm going to wind down from this. But then when I saw the one and two um, in statistic in 2016 um, that came out of the Croy conference, I was like, what is happening here? Why is it one and two for gay black men? That makes no sense. And then a couple months later, it. Sort of, there was a list of cities, and 21 of 28 were in the South, and Jackson, Mississippi, was ground zero. I was like, okay, 
Jackson, Mississippi, where the health was filmed, you know, the place where there's an amazing blues and barbecue. What is happening there? So I called Greg Millette. I called um, Phil Wilson. I called some of my friends. I called Terrence Moore. Um, I called Jennifer Cates at the um, Kaiser Foundation. I said, what's happening? And Terrence said, if you really want to know what's going on, go to the Saving Ourselves Symposium. And so I spent my own money. I flew down there. I, you know, went to the conference. I was amazed. I was like, wait, there are two, like a couple of hundred black gay men having their own conference. Like, it's really crowded. It's super fun. Everybody gets dressed up for the dinner. And then somebody said, you need to talk to Cedric. And I was like, who is Cedric? They said, he is at my brother's keeper. And I said, where is it? In Jackson. So I just spent $150 for a plane change, (laughs) rented a car, got a hotel, and drove down there. And I was like, I know you don't know me, but here I am. Just tell me everything. And so I learned about my brother's keeper. I didn't even see Cedric at that. He was too busy. And I pitched the story. I said, this is a great story about my brother's keeper. So I pitched it to a woman I knew at the New York Times, Jessica Lustig, and she said, this story is nice, but why did this happen? Whose fault is it? How could these guys in 2017, how could it be one and two? Do the pitch again and be more angry about it. Aren't you angry? And I said, you know what? I am angry. And so I did the pitch. It got accepted. And, you know, the Times was really supportive and super interested in this story and pushed me to go further than even my own vision of it. So I am super happy that it's out now and it's getting such a good response. Absolutely. What do you think, what would you want people most to know about the research and reporting you did around this piece? Like what are some of the things that may surprise, I mean, I know there's the the statistics obviously um, about one and two black gay men, Mm -hmm. um, but like in terms of the, the reasons why, the things that make you angry, like what are some things that might surprise folks to know? Well, I think that it probably isn't a surprise, big surprise to anyone um, listening here, because we know this story. Um, But I think the surprise was that at each turn when something could have been done, whether it's, I mean, starting from the beginning, like what would have happened if the two men, two black men would not have been left out of the original five cases in June 1981 in the CDC's um, newsletter? So there were five cases that became really famous, but there were actually seven, and one of them was a black gay man. The other was a black Haitian man. What if they hadn't have gotten left out? Would the narrative have been different? I don't know. Then, you know, as the story goes, it seemed like HIV-AIDS was, I mean, GRID, as it was then called, was a disease of, you know, white gay men of means. What if that narrative was different? Then it was sort of like, all right, so the gay community mobilized, but we were not largely part of that, you know, black gay men were not largely part of that mobilization that really around act up. So certainly not, not completely absent, but not, you know, in the center of it. So then once 1996 came and the medication came, the setup was for white gay men in cities. So there was nothing in the, you know, the the infrastructure of the South could not support rolling out this new expensive drug. And so we didn't have a GMHC in most cities. You know, we didn't have those things. So, or Whitman Walker Clinic and all these places. And 
So we miss that was a miss. Then the black community is like, oh, my God, you know, it's the number one killer of people in the reproductive age. We've got to do something. And the whole focus is, I mean, not the whole, but most of the focus is on black women. And it's heterosexual women. It's kind of like, wait a minute. <laughs> so that was a miss. So at each turn, we, you know, black gay men got left out of this. And so then add the layer of in many of the places where um, black men live, especially in the South, the infrastructure doesn't support, you know, I mean, it's poor. When you say infrastructure, what what kinds of infrastructure do you think would be helpful um, in terms of like, like what kind of infrastructure would we need for there to be um, better response and support for black men? Well, it's interesting because I'm saying infrastructure, but I really mean sort of starting with the facilities, like, you know, the healthcare facilities, but especially for the, for the, you know, medical providers. I mean, even now, one in three medical providers don't really know about PrEP. And so, and, you know, Phil Wilson did that great report, um, I guess it was last year, about the large number of medical providers who don't know the basics of HIV AIDS treatment. And the average grade was something like a D when in a survey. So I was like, well, wait a minute. If these people don't know, if most, most medical providers outside of the big cities don't know how to treat HIV, and that's assuming that they, uh, you know, will do it because they're not thinking it's God's punishment or, you know, I don't want to deal with this and, or not talking about the LGBT thing in the medical setting. So, um, from the facilities in uh, communities that are not really wealthy to the providers. And then this is assuming that you have a provider. So there's just a lot. So, so the way um, HIV care and treatment rolled out for white gay men, wealthy white gay men or middle class didn't work the same way for us. And so that was, you know, a miss. So now you add up all these things and you end up, and racism, <laughs> and then you end up with a one and two situation, a projected one and two situation. Are there things that you found in your research and writing for the piece that give you hope, that make you think that perhaps we're doing this right? Were there any opportunities that you see, even in the midst of such utter, you know, catastrophe? Um, in many cases, mm-hmm. um, were there any strategies, um, any? interventions or approaches that you think um, that give you hope? Well, I think the one thing that it, it was, it's not even that specific. It's just how many black gay men are involved in every level about around care, treatment, prevention, testing, and know a lot. You know, those, the people who um, are living with HIV, who survived, know a lot. There are so many people like you and the work you do, who are activists, who are really working in this. And what's angering is that, you know, I think the the thing that really hit me the most in this piece was when I started looking at the names of the organizations. It's like, why do you need a counter narrative? And it's like, oh, right, because the primary narrative leaves you out. Why are, is Why is there a saving ourselves symposium? Why isn't someone else helping us, like the federal government? Why isn't there an emergency here? Why is the tagline, our people, our problem, our solution for Black AIDS Institute? Why is help, us helping us, you know, in, um, in D.C.? Why isn't that the name? So I really, really appreciate that, you know, it's like 
we need to save ourselves and we need to be the you know ones that take care of each other but it makes me angry at the same time that we have to that this is the situation that's set up where it's like oh we've got to save ourselves and it's like where is everyone else in this absolutely and I mean, so you yeah. know there are certainly a lot of allies like barbara lee barbara lee is a hero heroine but there's not enough people like Barbara Lee who understand this, who in it for the long term, who was always willing to step to the table. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I've pretty much dedicated my entire professional life to working um, around the impact of HIV on the lives of black gay men. It's I mean, I've often um, sort of stated that it's, I believe, in many ways, the, the moral question of my generation, certainly. Um, and at the same time, I find there's this there's, I think, a lot of misconceptions about how HIV impacts uh, black communities and specifically black gay men. And also just a lot of indifference, like a lack of um, what I would say, a lack of public empathy. And so what I, what I was wondering yeah. is, what are your thoughts about both the lack of public empathy around how HIV impacts black gay men and also what kinds of interventions should we be thinking about to inspire more public empathy, more and really more political will? Right. Well, I think, you know, one thing is I really hope this article makes a difference. And it matters that it was on the cover of the New York Times magazine. And, you know, I love having my name on the cover of the New York Times magazine. <laughs> I mean, it's like that is the gold standard for a journalist. But the important thing is that image of Jamarius Buckley is on the cover of the New York Times magazine. He is looking yeah. right at you saying, "What are, you know, like, come on. <laughs> and so I think, you know, all, the good thing about that publication is – People in the government read it, you know, leadership reads it, the senators, Congress people read it, you know, local government people read it. And so, you know, something has got to change. And I think a lot of it has to do with the very social justice issues um, around healthcare disparities, around inequality, that, that, you know, there, I think there's almost a twofold strategy. And strategy one is you know, we have to raise awareness about this. We have to, you know, roll up the sleeves. And I think it is at some point in this day and age, it is a mentoring kind of thing. It's an each one teach one. It's, you know, when I was down in Jackson, the way Mr. Cedric was working, that is effective. It's very time consuming. But what if there were a lot of Mr. Cedric, you know, I'm, there are, but even more people who just say, you know what, I'm wrapping my arms around you. I'm not letting you go. Because the uh, many of the men I interviewed were depressed mm. you know they were not and they're young so somebody so around the public empathy people were like well why don't they just get a condom it's like okay first of all you don't learn that in school you know they have abstinence only and abstinence plus in mississippi you can't say a condom penis you can't say these words in the you know in sex education they don't how would you know if you are 16 or 17. You don't understand. Plus, God is, to, you know, everyone from your minister who is a surrogate for God is saying this is wrong. And so, you know, <laughs> it's very hard. And so, it, you know, I read some of those comments on the New York Times um, website after the article ran, mm -hmm. very unsympathetic. Somebody said, why don't the guys just move? It's like, okay, <laughs> if you think that they can, you pick up and leave your home and you have the money, you have the resources, you can't do that. And it's like, just use a condom every time. It's like, please read the story, people. <laughs> if the community viral load is extremely high, 
even, your condom breaks, you, your chance of getting HIV is so much higher than if you're in a community in South Dakota. And so just, you know, understand the facts so that you're not being so judgy. And the focus on... And it's on, also like mm-hmm. if there were treat... Sorry, if, just let me finish with one mm-hmm. point. If there were treatment, because treatment works as prevention, <laughs> that's the smartest thing. But, you know, all of this stuff doesn't exist in a, you know, full access way in places like Jackson, Mississippi. And the focus on individual behaviors, I think, in many ways, doesn't hold institutions accountable. Institutions that have failed our community, institutions that are absolutely complicit in in what's happening, Um, institutions that have that have let us down and have shut their doors in our face. And I mean, I, I think about institutions, I think about healthcare institutions. Um, but I also think That's about, right. you know, to talk about history and to talk about the LGBT communities, also to talk about, you know, what it meant for a generation of black gay men to go to these, you know, sort of gayberhoods, what are supposed to be these kind of LGBT utopias and and be shut and mm-hmm. be turned away. So that looks yeah. like, you know, like in the 80s, you know, there's so many narratives and before so many narratives of of black black gay men trying to go into the to, to gay clubs and being forced to to show seven forms of ID and you know Marla Riggs kind of talks about that and talks about Tide and I just think that you know and I, and, I, and what I find is a lot of you know white LGBT folks that are quick to talk about oh the black church and homophobia and I think that's important that's an important discussion to have but I think we also got to talk about what it meant for you know black gay men to enter into like LGBT spaces and experience this structural racism and also like, you know, in, 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 in litany of microaggressions that I think absolutely had a role in, in how we um, sort of uh, navigated those spaces. I 100% agree with you. And even, you know, to take it a step further, it's the lack of funding from LGBT organizations that of more, you know, more recently, when I put the statistic about the drop in funding for HIV AIDS, and it was like, here's the funding for gay men. And it was something like $16 million out of 200 and some million dollars. The editor thought it was incorrect. Mm. And I said, no, I have, here it is. And I had to link to her so she could see. I said, the gay community, the, you know, the larger gay community has really left this you know, left this issue and turned to marriage equality. And certainly marriage equality is important, but it was really poignant for me to learn about that video that happened in 2013. And it was a bunch of um, people who, you know, like a bunch of LGBT organizations, a video imploring them, please come back. Please don't forget about HIV AIDS. That's kind of like, oh my God, why are we having to do this with the larger gay community? And I think that that really bothered me. And I think that that, you know, a lot of the, you know, our country doesn't understand that the gay community is very segregated. It's less so in Brooklyn, where I live, but in the South, it is intensely segregated. And so, and other places, and it's like, we have to understand that. So it's not easy. And that's what's hard about this issue um, for black gay men and HIV, especially in the South, is it's not easy. And it's many of the structural issues that you just mentioned, along with, you know, the gay community, the black community, homophobia in the black church. If I, my white friends know not to mention that to me anymore, or in the church <laughs> or the community, it's like, it, you cannot, if you say that, we're going to have a fight, mm. because that is so reductive to what is actually going on, <laughs> you know, for us on the ground. It is not, oh, your community so homophobic, mm-hmm. they all, they hate gay people. It's like so much more complicated than that. And we'll blame everything and part on of us, it too. Is our own, <laughs> 
They blame everything on us. And mm-hmm. part, part, why don't you just come out to your parents? It's like, you know what? You don't just come out to your parents and coming out is your thing. I mean, it's my personal thing, but also, you know, it is your thing. And it's like, if you come out, you get kicked out. You can't just waltz down to the West Village and go live. It's like, oh, you, I live in Harlem. This is where I've always lived. My community's there. My, you know, I, my job is there. My family's there. My, that's where I live. It's like not so easy. Mm. So don't get me started on that. <laughs> I will just go crazy. <laughs> yeah. I also want to say, you know, um, I know there's a narrative of the South um, and particularly Missis- places like Mississippi and Georgia and so forth that, you know, they're, they're backwards, they're um, uneducated. And I say this is somewhere from the South that here's, you know, this, um, mm-hmm. you know, from folks um, or just this sort of narrative of the South is being like completely, just you know think of slavery i mean which are true like a lot of these realities are absolutely um important to to hold and to uh to to emphasize but there's also you know amazing inspiring stories and i think your piece kind of does that um showing uh folks uh being a community folks um helping each other particularly story of cedric um could you just talk a little bit more about like why you chose to i mean you could have written the piece in a way where it was just like this sort of condemning um, kind of like, oh, this, you know, Mississippi is this backward place and they get what they deserve kind of thing. But you also chose to um, tell, you know, uh, people stories too. And I was wondering, could you talk about your choice to write the piece in that way to, to make it more complicated? I um, didn't feel that, I mean, my family is, my grandparents are both from Mississippi. And so Mississippi has a place in my own heart, but, you know, I'm a northerner now. And so I hadn't been there in a long time. I felt like if I think of just how wonderful, I mean, hard topic, but great times. I mean, I loved hanging out with Cedric. I love, I met his family. I went to the, we went to the Delta together. They cooked me a big meal. He has like a hundred people in his family. I met every single one. His aunt was the mayor of their tiny little town. <laughs> and it was, I mean, it's so pretty there. It's so, the, you know, it's just everyone's so warm. I didn't feel like some backward thing. What I felt was their government is backward. And, you know, why are you having an anti-gay, you know, it's like ridiculous. And you have legislation that's like harming your people even more. This week, I mean, last week, the same time the article came out, they they not funding HIV, making free HIV tests. It's like, are you, uh, uh, you know, asleep at the wheel here? Um, And so, you know, that is difficult, but uh, the people so warm. And also, I love the taking care of each other and, you know, trying to take care of themselves, but taking care of each other. And that's really important. They don't have an LGBT center there. And so, you know, Mr. Cedric is often (laughs) the entertainment, you know, it's like, oh, we're going to have movie night at My Brother's Keeper or The Spot. And it's kind of like, oh, everybody's coming there because there's not, you know, they don't have the kinds of structures we have in New York. And so that's one of the visions I had for him. It's poor, poor Cedric. He's probably like, oh, my God, this woman is pushing me too hard. But I said, what if, you know, we do some type of fundraising based on this article and you say, you know, we raise money for scholarships because a lot of the guys had had to leave college. Like they had made it mm-hmm. to college but had to leave for various, you know, reasons around I, I can't afford it. Things happen. I was ill. I, you know, and it'd be nice to have them go back to college. It would be nice to have, you know, an emergency fund. One of the guys last Absolutely. week was getting kicked out of his apartment. So mm-hmm. an anonymous donor just paid his rent. I just got the money today. 
And so, you know, there's a lot that can be done, and I think that being at the SOS conference last year, seeing the kind of work you're doing, seeing the kind of work that Phil and, you know, David Malbranch, all you guys are doing, I, you, can, you can do this, but just know that you are not doing it completely alone. There was a groundswell for this, and there were people who were saying, what can I do? That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, well, thank you so much for, for chatting with us. I thought that um, I think this is uh, – wow, I'm just so inspired. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to say, you know, you were – before we were taping, we were talking about I Will Be Heard, and that's mm-hmm. one, the one thing that um, my – I had a really long, beautiful um, – passage about Craig Harris and it got cut you know <gasps> the cutting room floor I know oh, no. oh my gosh I need to just post it somewhere could you, send you, you. Could we, could we, yes could we post it on a blog yes I'm going to send you the whole just the cut please part. and what was really intense is Paul Kawada from the National um, Minority AIDS Commission? I, okay, I'm getting it wrong, but, you know. NMAC. I would just say NMAC. <laughs> yeah, NMAC, NMAC, thank you. Um, so from NMAC had this fantastic quote, and he said, you know, we didn't even, <laughs> he stood up, he grabbed that microphone, um, Silverman stepped aside and let him speak, and he said, he, he called him a brave queen, which I loved. He was just a brave queen. He stepped up to that microphone, did that thing, changed history, and then um, he said we didn't know what we were doing. We were just kind of bungling along, and it was a moment. And I'm sorry that got cut out, but, um, you know, that is really inspiring, and we need to just grab right back onto that rallying cry because so, it's really important Absolutely. right now. Well, thank yeah. you so much for everything, and let's definitely stay in conversation. I hope we can continue to chat and be in conversation. Yes, anything you need. I mean, I'm really serious, and we can, you know, talk again because I would love to see, you know, keep help in whatever way I can to keep the momentum going. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. Thank you. That was the Counter Narrative Project founder and executive director Charles Stevens having a conversation with journalist Linda Villarosa. Linda wrote a piece for the New York Times entitled "America's Hidden HIV Epidemic." For more information on this show, as well as that indicated piece that Linda mentioned about Craig Harris, you can visit us online at thecounternarrative.org. Thank you for listening to CounterPoint.